Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at documentary filmmaking. I'm your host, Christian Taylor. My co-host, Jason Rugg, has the day off today, but thankfully I am joined by a guest and friend of the show that can fill a seat beautifully, Joe Amaday of Virgil Films Entertainment. Welcome, Joe. So glad to have you here. Thank you for... Yeah, giving your time. It's really, uh, there's a big change in the industry right now. So much happening. And so it's a beautiful time to have you come on. You just got back from LA and I know there's just kind of lots to report. So before we get into that, I just need to do a quick company update. So just give me, give me a second. Um, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we have a Patreon page. If you're new to the show and you're interested in joining our creative community, head on over to patreon.com slash documentary first and check it out. You can choose to join for free and kind of see what's going on, or you can pick a tier level to come and support us. Now, before you do that, I just want to let you know we're revamping our page. We have some exciting things coming up, including a Zoom party, because we want to get listener input about the show and the direction of our Patreon. Right now, we have a pretty small community that is active, and we're looking um, to them to sort of help us figure out um you know, a lot of creative things regarding the new films we have coming out, who we interview on the podcast. Uh, and, and I'm even thinking about doing a, another podcast inside the Patreon world where it's just me sharing, uh, some things I'm thinking about, et cetera. So if you're interested in those things, go on over to Patreon and, uh, and join the fun. Um, and I also want to give thanks to a whole bunch of people that have been supporting us. So Bethany, thank you so much. Mary Ingram. Patrick Brothers, Kim Gray, Brandy, Rachel Stanton, Terry, Christopher Marold, Lindsay Vassant, and Sean Quinlan. Uh, I can't tell you how much it means that you guys have decided to come and be part of our community. Thank you so much. I do hope you will participate. Uh, and oh my goodness, I have a cat in my lap. All right. Uh, we're going to just move on uh, again. Check out Patreon and um, we're going to dive in with Joe. Uh, all right. So you have been to LA uh, and you have lots to report before we do that. Tell me who you are and you know why you would even go to LA. Oh gosh. For the, for the weather. <laughs> <laughs> was it well, nice? Nicer. It was nicer. I mean, we're about to get six to eight more inches of snow today. So anything's, yeah. anything's better, but you're in Philadelphia. I'm outside of Philadelphia, the home yeah. of the Philadelphia Eagles um, and flyers. And Flyers. And, and what's your and baseball space. team? Phil Phillies. What's your baseball team? Phillies, yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, so you're there. And what do you do for a living? So uh, my company, I, I own a company called Virgil Films and Entertainment. And we are a traditional distribution company. So we're the folks to go out and acquire the rights to movies. We see them films either at film festivals or filmmakers send us their films to take a look at. Uh, we get a lot of recommendations from other filmmakers of films that we've we've released. So we will negotiate with the filmmaker um, for acquiring certain rights to their films, the rights to put it up on all digital platforms, the rights to try to tell it to sell it to TV channels, the rights to put it out on DVD, the rights to put it out theatrically in movie theaters, uh, the rights to sell it to, into the educational market. The rights to sell it on or try to put it onto cruise ships and airlines. Every different right that you can think of, international rights to try to sell it overseas. Um, when you when you make a film and you own that film, all of those rights are available to the filmmaker to sell. And you could either go the route of piecemealing and selling 
international rights to this company, domestic U.S. rights to this company, television rights to this company, and you have your film being shopped by five or six different distributors. Or you can choose one distributor that does it all. We offer it all, but we don't always get it all, but we do offer it all because we can do all of the things that you that, that I just mentioned. We've been doing this for October. This past October was our 20th anniversary. I'm very wow. happy. 20th anniversary. And previous to that, I had worked for folks like Ted Turner um, when he had a home entertainment division, uh, Barry Diller when he had uh, USA Home Entertainment, um, and a couple other companies. And they're all great companies. And the one thing they have in common is that they're all very successful home entertainment companies, and they were also sold to a bigger conglomerate. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, so after going through that quite a few times, I didn't want to do it any longer, and I started my own thing. And again, that was 20 years ago. And not on purpose, but one of the first films that we acquired was a little documentary called Supersize Me. I remember this one. Okay. So Supersize Me and Morgan Spurlock put us on the map. And it it changed our world. It took a very small little company and turned it into a very reputable um, company that everybody knew about in the industry. And because of the success of Supersize Me, we started to get pitched a lot of great documentaries, um, including Restrepo which was nominated for Best Documentary, and a whole lot of others. And it all of a sudden, we became the documentary people. Not Again, nothing on purpose here. I always liked documentaries. In fact, I love documentaries, but I never thought I would have a career of selling documentaries, and that's what it's turned into. Um, And it's a career, and it's a company that has, you know, seen the highs and seen the lows of uh, of the business, seen the changes in the business. we were one of the first companies. I, I believe we were the second company to give Netflix movies for streaming. Wow! I think I've. I've I, I think you. I think you said uh, something the last time we had your, on the podcast when Netflix decided to go from DVDs to streaming. You had a famous quote. Oh <laughs> yeah, yes. I got I got a phone call from Ted Sarandis who. Um, has been in the trades a lot, especially during the strikes and a lot of other things that have happened along the way with Netflix, but he's a very good friend of mine. And he called one day, we were sending them DVDs just like everybody else was. And he said, I need a hundred movies. I need a hundred DVDs and um, I'll pay you. Um, it was a nice sum of money per DVD. And I said, fine. You know, you mind me asking, what are you going to do with these DVDs? And he said, yes. And he described this new thing that they came up with called streaming and how people are going to watch movies on their computer. And I said to him, Ted, I'll be more than happy to send you the hundred movies. I'll be more than happy to cash your check. But I got to tell you, buddy, nobody's ever going to watch a movie on a computer. (laughs) What year was that? Do you remember? Mm, No, I don't. I should. I really should. Um, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I remember getting DVDs from Netflix. Oh, yeah. Um, So it was at least 20 years ago. Because I also remember going to Blockbuster, you know, and getting, and that was where I currently live. So I've been in this town for 30 years. And I remember my boys are 30 to 25. And I remember taking them into Blockbuster and getting movies. So it's got to be 
somewhere around that 20 year mark. 20 years. It's, it's probably tw- closer to 25. 25. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also called on Blockbuster. I started calling on Blockbuster when they were in Florida and then they moved to Dallas and would, uh, fly down to Dallas and go visit them in their corporate headquarters, downtown Dallas. And they, very nice people, they didn't think streaming would, would work either. And um, they also didn't think that movies in the mail would work as Netflix had already perfected. Yeah. So as a consumer and as a film geek, I was, I was getting three movies, you know, every shot. And it was great. You know, um, I always had movies to watch and, and I still went to the, you know, local video store. Um, Blockbuster never believed in in that. They got into that business too late. Yeah. And then they avoided getting into streaming. And well, we all know we all know where Netflix is at the rest today. Is history. <laughs> yeah, and we all know where Blockbuster is at today. But the best That's thing so- about Blockbuster is I became friends with some of the folks that worked there. And um, I'll give a shout out to Keith Leppard, who's become one of my closest friends in the business. Keith does. He's a competitor, but he's also a great friend. He has a company called Uncorked. He's living in Florida. And uh, so the friendships that you make along the way um, turn out to be more important than the, you know, the business itself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's been, you've had a long history in the business. I mean, we're talking when you started, even before Supersize Me, I mean, what are you, are you at 45 years now, you think? I started business? in 1980, oh God, 19, around 1985. Mm-hmm. So you're at 40 years because I'm I graduated from school in 84 and it's yeah. my 40th high school reunion this year. So yeah, yeah, you've been in this a long time. You've seen a lot of change uh, over the industry, you know? You know, it's interesting. Uh, my my wife and I just watched a doc- documentary on some stars or Showtime called Thriller at 40. It's a documentary about the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Right. We sold Thriller on VHS, thousands of copies of that at the video store I worked with or I worked wow. at. So I've been in the business at least that, at least that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you've seen such incredible changes over, over that time. And I want to talk about that in just a second, but I want to go back uh, and address something you said earlier um, and I'm going to apologize to you because I have this cat. I just got brand new kittens and these kittens, I cannot keep them out of my office and they apparently want to be on this podcast. So I'm no trying, problem. but he wants to be around me co- well, continually. So you're no going to be this. This is Kathy, by the way. These two little kittens are, are named after Lieutenant Joe Galloway uh, from A Few Good Men. And she that's the little girl. And this is Lieutenant Daniel Kathy that's on camera wow. right now who uh, who won't leave me alone. We call him Kathy for short. Anyway, back to you. Uh, one of the things that you uh, – full disclosure, everybody. The reason I know Joe is because uh, Joe is my distributor for The Girl Who Wore Freedom and will be my distributor for anything else that comes out. And the reason reason is because exactly what you see here. Um, Joe has been incredible to work with, mostly because he cares. He cares about the filmmaker. I mean, he's a filmmaker himself, and he knows what we go through. Um, I have found him to be honest and transparent and um, very collaborative in nature. He has a great team of people. And I think it is because uh, you've been in the business such a long time, and you've seen just about all there is to see. Um, so. 
you know, we've now known each other for a couple of years. The way that I found Joe is I went to the um, Julian Dubuque Film Festival, another film festival I highly recommend in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, and there, uh, Donna Reed's daughter, Mary Reed, was there. And uh, she came up to me and said, uh, you know, I got somebody I think will love your show. And anyway, that the rest is history. That's how uh, we know each other. Um, but Joe, you said you, you know, talk to filmmakers, you distribute their films, um, you're, you like meeting them. You also said you, you know, focus on documentaries. So two questions. Can any filmmaker or listener, you know, reach out to you? And do you only do documentaries? Yes, anybody can reach out to me. You can, you know, go to our website and get my information or just write down Joe at virgilfilmsent.com. Um, anybody, anybody that's listening or watching this podcast can reach out to me. Okay. Uh, uh, the second question, what was the second question? The second question is, do you only do documentaries? <laughs> no, we do it. Well, no, we do everything. Um, okay. I'm negotiating for a horror film right now. So okay. we do have to make money. Right. Well, no. horror film is the way to do it. It's what I have heard, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we, 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 I'd say probably right now we're still 75, 80% documentaries. But, you know, when I walk into the building at Netflix or when I walk into the building at Hulu, um, there are different divisions. And I, if I have a horror movie or a narrative to sell, I'll meet with that division. Uh, if it's a documentary, I'll meet with that division. If it's a doc series, I'll meet with that division. So the good thing mm. about what Virgil was able to do, and it's kind of the thing that does separate us. I'm getting into the building is the best mm -hmm. way to say it. Whereas um, a lot of other people just, just don't. And that's because of those relationships. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, there's kind of word on the street that, you know, things are changing in terms of how uh, streamers find their films to license and that maybe the day of the distributor, you know, is going away because they can go to aggregators of documentaries and just go in there and shop around for themselves. Now, you know, do, is that happening? Has that been a competition in your business? And do you think that the personal touch is going to win out? Or do you think the younger generation of buyers at those streamers would just rather go to an online portal and find films? The No, I, I, I don't agree with that assessment at all. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. There have always been aggregators, always, since, you know, and th these are people that, that have the rights to, you know, dozens of, of documentaries, most of them. I don't want to say bad documentaries because no film is bad. They're just not bankable. Okay. And the buyer doesn't want to go sit and, and look at one company's, you know, 40 or 50 different types of films without any kind of contact with anyone promoting that film. Where, whereas having meetings with people and they still have meetings. I mean, um, where someone is actually discussing the film with them, it's always going to be, it's always going to be the best way. They, they're, you know, the buyers are getting films from all different sources. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I was in LA last week and I, I saw the whole cast of characters, Apple and Hulu and Amazon, Netflix, you know, the top four. 
And all four said exactly the same thing. I presented them with our lineup of films, you know, seven or eight movies coming out over the next four or five months. And they said, great, you know, there's a few of these that we're interested in, but we won't be able to really get into these films until after Sundance. And Sundance starts today. So right. for them, for them, it started a week ago. Right. Um, because, you know, the unwritten saying is that everybody thinks the films are, you know, being seen for the first time at Sundance. And a lot of them are, but there's quite a few that aren't. <laughs> well, what well, frustrates me is it seems like films are going there that already have distribution, which well, they doesn't are. seem right. Yeah. yeah. And that's changed. You know, that's a, that's a completely different conversation, but. It kind of sucks, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, it does. It sucks. For, for filmmakers trying to get their films seen in a film festival and to find out that 25% of the films or shows being uh, programmed are already bought. Right. But right. the film festival needs that Netflix sponsorship or they need that Hulu, you know. Uh, is that what's happening? I mean, I don't know. I, I can't say that to be truthful, but, uh, you know. Uh, do you think it's the thing like, okay, I was there in 2019. Uh, Taylor Swift's movie, Miss America, I think is what it was called, was debuting that year. She did already have distribution with Netflix. Um, and I wondered if it was um, a press thing, like a press, you know, okay, this film is going to Sundance. And yes, it's debuting on Netflix, but we want to be able to go to Sundance, say we're going to Sundance, you know, have it in the papers and have you know, footage well, or uh, photos yeah. from there, publicity from there. Is that what it might be? Well, you have to, we, what a lot of people in the industry forget is that the Sundance Film Festival or the Toronto Film Festival is a public film festival. They sell tickets. Ah. So their revenue is ticket sales. So if you're premiering a Taylor Swift movie or if you're premiering a movie, and we'll just use Netflix. If Netflix is premiering a movie there that is hot, they're going to sell out. Whatever screenings they have are going to sell out. Now, Sundance, for example, also has a complete set of screenings called the industry screenings that the public can't go to. That's where we go. That's where the buyers go. And then if we want to go to the bigger screenings and go see Taylor Swift, we can do that as well, depending on the badge that we buy. The more expensive the badge, the more you get into. So, well, and I'm assuming, wouldn't you care about going to those open audience screenings to see how the audience responds to the film before you? In, in most cases, those movies are so big, I'm not buying them. My company's mm -hmm. not buying them. They're but still, of even the smaller ones, wouldn't you want to see how the audience responds? Or do no. you care? No. We don't care. You, the film you, festival audiences is... So, um, what's the word? Jaded, not jaded, jaded in a good way, meaning you get standing ovations at film festivals and you never get, and, and that exact same film will die at the box office. <laughs> okay. It's not, <laughs> you know? it's not a, it's not it's a, a, um, it's a film festival crowd. Yeah. And yeah. most of the time you have the cast there. So, right. You know, they're not going to, it's just, it's just, you're, they're, the they're film, biased. They're biased. They're not an objective audience. I get what you're saying. Well, all right. So, well, so another wait, so question. Wait, so, 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 so let me let me let me let me stay on this. Okay. So you have the you have those film festivals: Sundance, Toronto, 
South by Southwest, again, open to the public. Cannes, open to the public. Berlin, open to the public. But some of these other film festivals, like Cannes, like um, Berlin, also have film markets. Right. For the industry. Before and those markets, during. During, okay. During. So those markets will also screen two, 300 movies that are not open to the public. So the industry, buyers, filmmakers like you, you want, you want to try to get your film in that market because buyers from all over the world will go to those screenings and see your movie. Mm. You know, it's great to walk the red carpet, but it doesn't sell your movie. I mean, your movie's usually already sold by the time you do that. But I'm assuming there is a cost um, for, you know, if I wanted my next film to be in the market there, I'm assuming yeah. there's like a, a marketing cost. I probably would have to come to you and say, hey, would you help me do this? Because I have no way, to, no way of knowing how to do that. I mean, what's the process for that? So the process is you submit the film to the market. They say yes, because they want the film. They, there is no critical person looking at the film and saying, ah, this isn't any good. They want it. You have to choose how many screenings you want. So if you want, say, two screenings, it costs you somewhere around $1,200. And that's it. Hmm. You deliver the film in the same way you would deliver the film to Virgil. or, um, And that's it. And, and that gets you your little advertisement in their book and on the website and on a website called Sanando that covers all the movies playing. And it gives you, it gives the time synopsis. Um, so for $1,200, somewhere around there, I think, and I believe that's for two screenings. You can do one for $700 and you get to screen your movie. And we've, we've done mm. that. Yeah. And how successful is that? Um, both films that I did it with, I, I land one of them not, not successful at all. And the other one, I landed a distributor in France. So, okay. um, it really all depends, you know? Yeah. On the really film really and depends. who the buyers yeah. are and probably what the audience is looking for. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really think it's interesting because if let's say theoretically, I put my next film in that market. And it was popular and there were distributors that were calling on me to say, you know, ah, making an offer, wanting to make a deal. I've been burned already by one of those situations. Right. And I feel very fortunate that I've fallen into this relationship with you, but there is a huge fear among filmmakers right now in regards to dealing with, you know, distributors and, you know, distribution companies. I had a filmmaker say to me recently you know, there's this big movement for everybody to self-distribute. You know, we can self-distribute through all of these different ways. And I think that's popular because people don't trust distributors that much anymore or distribution companies um, simply because a lot of them have had a very bad reputation. And it's also hard to vet random, you know, distribution companies that would make an offer for your film. How, what, what recommendation do you have for filmmakers as they're considering those options? I, there's a really only one recommendation and that would be to, you know, let Virgil distribute your film. <laughs> That's true. You know, you know I've, I heard totally that, agree I've, heard, 
I've heard what you're saying ever since I got into the business. And even, you know, you can go back historically um, and read about lawsuits from major movie stars that never got paid by the distributor. And that distributor could be even a Warner Brothers or a, you know, um, major TV stars never get residuals on TV shows. Hollywood is very well known for cheating people. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's just been that way forever. So, so first, let's deal with self-distribution. So you've made your movie. You've toiled and turned and drove yourself crazy for two or three years making a movie. And now, now you're going to become a distributor. And, and I'm not saying you personally, but you're a filmmaker. Yeah, but whoever decides. Right. Yeah. So you're going to contact Amazon and iTunes and there is ways of doing that. Amazon, um, and you're not, and, and you, and they're going to offer you a split that will not be anywhere near as favorable as the split that a distributor gets. Um, and you're going to be on the hook for everything. You're going to be on the hook for delivering. You're going to be on the hook. Um, you know, I, I recently talked to, to a filmmaker. This is a perfect example who, who put, is putting her movie out on DVD. And she told me she's paying $2 a DVD to make those DVDs. Well, I believe we pay 90 cents. So that's the type of things that happen when you self-distribute. So, you know, You'll hear success stories. You will hear, well, you know, friends of mine know somebody that made a million dollars by self-distributing their movie. And it's very possible that they did. And, you know, Rocky won one best picture, but it was a, it was, it was one in a million. The Blair Witch Project was a one in a million. You know, we have these success stories. There's only so many Napoleon Dynamites out there. You know, films that come out of nowhere that make millions and millions of dollars. So your chances of doing that on your own um, are very, very slim. And then you got to the point where you're a filmmaker. You're not a distributor. You know, filmmakers are great at making films. They're not great at distributing their movies. This is what I told this person that was talking to me. Because... You can self-distribute and there are plenty of programs out there that tell you how to do that, that encourage people to do that. Uh, and, and if you do do it and there is some success, you are theoretically making a bigger profit, you know, than you would if you had a middleman, yeah. right? But yeah. the problem is there is a time value quotient, right? In life. And what I've learned is, if you're going to do that, you've changed jobs. If you're going to self-distribute, yes. you're no longer a filmmaker. You have become a business person. And so it's already hard enough as a filmmaker, in my opinion, to once you've made your film, get to that business part of it where you do have to make the deals with distributors and you have to look over contracts and you have to make sure that you're delivering everything. I mean, there's still that business part of things that a filmmaker has to do uh, that do not come natural to us and they're not fun, you know? So you add being self-distributor on top of that. That's a whole nother business that you have to learn. And that takes your time away from what, you know, making movies, right? Making movies. You, I mean, you're a perfect example. You're making another movie as we speak. Okay. Yep. Actually too. You, Two. Yeah, that's right. Two. You, you don't need to take time away from that, which gives you your creative output. 
right. to work on, um, you know, uh, an entirely different business, which is the dis- distribution business of film. It's entirely different right. than making movies. So right. are there are there other good, honest companies out there besides Virgil? Um, and I'm, and I'm sure in 20 years or 30, 25 years of doing this, there's people that might not like Virgil. Um, I can't think of more than a couple <laughs> and those couple that don't like us, um, we don't really like you either, you know? So there was, you know, <laughs> right. so it wasn't a very uh, good situation. Yeah. And you personally know exactly what that situation is. Okay. Cause yep. you've been through it yourself. So, yep. Um, but there are there are some other some other honest companies. You know, my again, my buddy who owns Uncorped and his partner Keith and Mike, um, they're reputable, honest company. You know, um, there's a couple, but there's also a lot that aren't. You know, um, yeah, it's a shame, but that's the way the business works. You know, well, and I think it's very. I feel like there's a very evil underside to our industry. It doesn't just happen in distribution. It happens in film festival, the film festival world, for example, you know, filmmakers that come in and they don't have their chops, right? They don't really know much. Uh, They don't understand that that in itself is a huge business and they're kind of preying on filmmakers just to get their money. Um, and there's a lot of film festivals out there that aren't even really legitimate. But if you don't know yeah. how to check all of that out, you can get taken advantage of, blah, blah, blah. It's the same in distribution. It's just very hard to vet distributors to figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And um, I just think there's an inherent distrust. It's one of the reasons I like having you on the show is I think that the more people that get to know that a distributor is a real person. You know, most of them are real people. Um, And a smaller shop for me has been like, we had an offer from Gravitas Ventures and maybe I shouldn't mention them, but they don't make me very happy. We had, um, we won uh, the uh, emerging filmmaker award at the um, Chagrin documentary film festival. And with that came distribution with Gravitas Ventures. Well, their deal was, you know, 15 years and you do all the marketing and we don't really do anything for you. And I've heard that before from other people that they, they acquire that and they just bury it and they lock people into a deal. Um, they have distribution costs up front that they have to pay, but they don't ever really make anything back. And it's just, I don't know how you, I don't know. I feel, I feel frustrated as you can tell and pretty bad for people that um, have difficulty finding a good distributor. Well, I think that um, you and I should start a consulting business for filmmakers and we charge them for our knowledge and you can handle the whole film festival part of it and I'll handle the physical distribution part of it and we'll give them advice and make a lot of money. That's a deal. We're going to talk about that off off the air. <laughs> All right. You know- You know what I want to do real quick? I still have a whole bunch of questions for you. So I'm going to try to break up this podcast into two. And so right now we're going to go into DocuView Deja Vu because I want to hear a a recommendation that you have. And I'll save my recommendation for the next podcast. Uh, But do you have a documentary uh, to uh, talk to us about? It's already here. It's already here. So I've been reading this great great autobiography um, by George Stevens, Jr. His father, George Stevens, made Shane, uh, Diary of Anne Frank, uh, two of the 
classic Astaire Rogers films. George Stephen was a prolific filmmaker during the 30s, mostly romantic comedies. Um, every once in a while, he would do a tear-jerking drama like Penny Serenade, but this guy made Academy Award winning and nominated films until the war broke out. And right, Stevens, I was going to say, until World War II. Yes, until World War II. And Stevens was part of the group of filmmakers along with Frank Capital and, 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 and John Houston to go make um, documentaries about the war. They were hired, not, not hired, but they joined the service to go film the war to show back home. Stevens started his journey um, on the shores of Normandy and mm -hmm. filmed on the shores of Normandy. And after filming Normandy, he went, I guess it's up the coast to a town called Carrollton. Mm -hmm. And he filmed a lot of footage there. I did not know this. And where can I find this footage? <laughs> so I don't know where that footage is, but it is documented in the George Stevens Jr. book that I'm reading right now. And when I read it, the first thing I thought of was, I have a good friend making a movie about this. Now, now maybe you there is a way to contact Stevens. I'm sure there is if you look hard enough through the AFI, which he started. He started the American Film Institute. Maybe ah, through the Academy. This is George Stevens Jr.? Yeah. He started AFI. I did not know this. Okay. George Stevens Jr. started AFI, yeah. Under and he's Johnson, under Lyndon Johnson. So is is he still making films now? Or is George he alive? George Stevens Jr. is oh yeah. He every year he'll do a QA at TCM Film Festival. Okay. Um George Stevens Jr. started the AFI. He started the Kennedy Center uh honor honors every year. Wow. He oh yeah, he, he produced them all for years. Oh yeah, George Stevens Jr. is the first thing you should do is get the book. And, yeah, what's and, it called? And, and, um Hold on. <laughs> We're holding. I think he should have said stand by. So I could have said I'm sorry, standing stand by. by. Can you read that? Yes, my, my place, place in, in the, the sun. sun. Which All right. George Stevens Sr. made Place in the Sun with Elizabeth Montgomery and um, Elizabeth Montgomery. Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery. Right. So it's my place in the sun. I I take the covers off as I'm reading the book and I like to save the book. So um, <laughs> read the book and and if you want, just skip the first part and go to his war efforts and stuff and you'll read about that. I don't know where well, the footage is. It might be in other documentaries. Um, but so leading back to the deja vu, George Stevens Jr. made a film about his father called George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey. And it is the best documentary I've ever seen on a filmmaker. And it could be because the movie is being made by the guy's son. Right. Um, it is, it is amazing. And who is also rich a filmmaker. Yes. Rich with clips from, you know, again, Shane and uh, all of the other great films that, that George Stevens made. Cause when he came back from the war, he was like Capra and Houston and the rest of them. They, they were different people. George Stevens footage of Dachau was used during the Nuremberg trials, the footage really? that he shot. Oh yeah, they showed on a screen at during the Nuremberg trials. His footage. Wow! 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 Yeah. Well, he, I know that. 
I, I know that his footage was owned by the U.S. government because he was yes, part of was. the war effort. So it should be in the National Archives at the very least. So thank you for telling me this. I had no idea. Um, and I certainly didn't know he was in Carenton. So that will help with our upcoming film Heroes of Carenton, I think. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate this documentary recommendation. I think it comes very high. If you're telling me it's one of the best documentaries you've ever seen, uh, we need to go out and, and see this right away. Is it's, do you know what platform it's on? Is it on the, still on the big streamers? I, I would, I would, I'm not too sure, but I'm sure it's available on iTunes. Um, I believe you can still buy it on DVD. Um, okay. It's probably available. When did on it Prime. come out? I would have you to know? look it up. I'm doing it right now. Um, okay. It looks like it came out in 1984. Hey, it's as old yeah. as, as your business career. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, it looks like it might be on YouTube. There you go. Could be. Yes. So 19, it came out in 1985. Um, and let's see where it can be seen. I think there is a, a, a site called Just Watch where you can find out the answers to this. Um, yeah, but it for sure is on YouTube. It's got, you know, Great. 16, you know, thousand views or something like that. All right. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. I really appreciate it. It's always amazing talking to you. We're going to have you back. Uh, so if you're okay. listening to this and you want to hear more from Joe, uh, make sure you listen to the podcast that's going to come out in two weeks. Um, and I'm going to close real quick. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarefreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.